Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, one topic. And um, if you are into the Kentucky Derby, or if you even watch the Kentucky Derby, you will find this very interesting. Tim Layden and Dana O'Neill are longtime sports writers with years and years of experience covering the Kentucky Derby. Tim is a NBC Sports senior writer and a longtime colleague of mine when we were both at Sports Illustrated. Dana O'Neill is a senior writer at The Athletic, current colleague of mine at The Athletic. And in the podcast, we discuss what it's like to cover the Derby, the differences in covering horse racing versus traditional sports. They have a lot of experience covering traditional sports, what the Derby week is like. Uh, We get into this year's race, what they think of Forte, who is uh, a big favorite when it comes to this year's uh, Derby. And then we finish with... Uh, horse racing riders gambling, which uh, which does exist when they go to the track, and it's kind of an interesting and very unique situation. So Tim Layden and Dana O'Neill coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I'm uh, very, very excited to have these two guests uh, both at the top of their field for many, many years. Tim Layden is an NBC Sports senior writer. Obviously, my longtime colleague at Sports Illustrated, Dan O'Neill, is a senior writer for The Athletic, my current colleague at the moment. Um, in addition to the many different sports that both Dana and Tim have covered, um, they cover horse racing, and they cover it exceptionally well. And we're going to spend this podcast talking about what it's like to cover the Kentucky Derby and how two of the best to do it, navigate that process. Then pleased to be joined by Tim Layden, Dan O'Neill. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> All right, Tim, that was very formal of you. Nice. All right, Tim. <laughs> so I'm going to start with you, Tim, uh, and then Dana, just follow. And you guys can certainly go back and forth anytime you want. Um, Tim, you know, for as long as I've known you, you've covered a multitude of sports. We've spent many Olympics together. I know how much you love horse racing. When, um, when covering the Kentucky Derby, with all the various, all the variables that can happen, like in terms of like 
20 horses that in theory could win. What is your roadmap when you start the process of trying to report on this event? So it's, it's evolved over time, obviously covering it. Uh, This will be my 20th Derby in 22 years. Um, and a lot of horse racing before that, but, but covering the Derby for SI for a weekly magazine story, it was about, you know, 80% background and 20% writing the story after the race. Um, but then as digital media has evolved and my job at SI evolved more into writing a, a live digital story and also doing the magazine thing, two of the first four years I covered the Derby for the magazine, I probably spent a hundred hours preparing and two of the first four, the winner was a horse I had almost nothing on. Um, and I wound up scrambling after the race and writing really good stories. So over the course of time, I came to realize that there wasn't, there was uh, diminishing returns in filling up my notebook because more than half the time, what happens during the two minutes of the race and immediately afterward is going to be a large percentage of what I write. And so for me, it's kind of evolved into a thing where I try to maybe write a story or two before the Derby, which is or isn't about that particular Derby. It may be just something horse racing or historical or whatever, and then just be ready to go that day. And if I happen to know the trainer, the jockey, the owners, you know, that's great. Um, if I don't, like last year, um, you just go. And I, I think that that's become that that game plan was forced on me and I and through trial and error. And there were a few times over the years where I had a full notebook when the race ended. And that was great. Um, but the stories often weren't any better than what I got by scrambling for a half hour. So, um, you know, it's just become and we can talk. I'll let Dana go, but we can talk about what makes the race unique to cover. But um, that's all part of everything I just described, too. Dana, what about you? What's your sort of blueprint in terms of how to approach this 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 race? So you have to understand, number one, I am a writer who writes about horses, horses, not necessarily a horse racing writer. Um, I totally boondoggled my way into this, if I'm going to be completely honest. I went to the Derby as a fan a couple of times. And then in 2013, I had the brilliant idea as a college basketball writer watching Rick Pitino win the national championship and knowing he had partial ownership in a horse called Golden Sense, that maybe I could pitch a story on covering Rick Pitino as the king of Louisville and uh, go to the Derby. And lo and behold, ESPN sent me. And then I sort of kept schnookering my way in. as Tim will remember quite fondly, the first actual race I covered for the sake of horse racing was the 2015 Belmont Stakes. And Tim sat across from me having covered a thousand things waiting for a triple crown. And I watched one. I'm like, dude, this isn't hard. I thought he was going to throw his pen at me. Um, so you yeah. haven't forgiven you for that either. <laughs> no, you haven't. I know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So my preparation is usually let, let me just follow where Tim and Pat Forty go because they seem really smart about this. Um, but the more I've done it, the more I've obviously educated myself. I I will say my introduction to interested in horse racing was my mentor at the Philadelphia Daily News, and my mentor in life is Dick Girardi, who 
grew up going to the track as a, you know, as a, a part-time taxi cab driver and he would tell stories and make me interested in it. So I always had an interest and now I read and I learn um, and I try to kind of tell a story. I think the cool thing about horse racing is the stories are fantastic. The people are fascinating and, and interested. And because there's not media saturation, a lot of those stories are pretty much new to the casual reader, if not most readers. So you can always find a good story. So I just kind of apply general writing abilities to whatever horse cro crosses the finish line first. So uh, that's sort of my my method. Very, 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 very seriously, serious minded there. <laughs> Piggybacking on just one line on what Dana just said, the other thing, not only are the stories not not only is there minimal media saturation and less now than ever, and not only are the stories new to the public, but they are accessible to the media. Um, it's a little funky in the way you have to get them, but it's all out there. There's no, there's only a very small number of PR people and it's very sort of folksy PR. There's exceptions to that every once in a while, but for the most part, you can just find a story and go up and talk to the people about it without jumping through many hoops and, you know, as as both Dana and I have seen, and you, Richard, over time, that becomes an increasingly rare ecosystem where, it, you know, we're in a world where almost every interview involves jumping through some hoops. And to not have to jump through many at all is, it, it's a very nice thing. Tim, I want to follow up on that. And Dana, you're welcome to follow Tim. So can you give me a specific kind of real world example, if you're at the Olympics, or if you're at some, you know, at the final four, you obviously have to follow the protocol of you can only get an athlete in the mix zone or at the final four, you can only get athletes on the podium. And perhaps after, um, you know, after the game in the locker room, what's the difference when it comes to covering a, a triple crown, uh, campaign? Can you literally just walk to the barn and, and, and talk to the top trainers and, and jockeys of the world? You know, why don't you go first? I don't want to always be the one to lead off here. So yeah, go no, ahead. So yeah, I mean, I, I will say this is this is actually. I'm glad that you brought this up because um, I actually teased David Warlock, who's the NCA coordinator for the media, about the fact that you know if I try to so much walk along the same pathway as Mike Shashevsky as he's walking to the court, and I'm simply trying to get to my media seat, there are 20 like security guards ready to tackle me. Meanwhile, I like was standing with Tim at the Breeders' Cup after Farrow, chatting with Bob Baffert as if I was talking to, like, my neighbor. And he's just stringing one crazy story after the other about wearing his first, going to his first Breeders' Cup, I think it was, Tim, where he wore a crappy shirt that was so cheap that it was, like, giving him chafed and bleeding nipples. And he's telling yeah, us this story. Yeah. And I'm just like, are you serious? Like, this is, like, the most important person in this sport. Nobody is standing around except for me, Tim, and, and I think Pat, and maybe a couple other reporters. And he's just kind of going off cuff and we're all writing it down and nobody cared. And it is amazing. And I, you know, you can literally follow the bazillion dollar horse on the track on the walkover. I mean, it's just completely different. And it's because, of course, there just isn't as many people involved in the game. And so I think the ones that are most, not all of them, but many of them are savvy enough to recognize that sharing stories and being accessible is good for the sport. But it's, it's, I joke with, with uh, Warlock about that all the time. I'm like, I can't even like 
walk on the court without getting tackled. And I just followed American Pharaoh, who's worth more than your NCAA tournament, across the track. <laughs> and nobody stopped me. I could have pulled his tail. That's very funny. And, and that really, you know, and that the American Pharaoh thing and Baffert, you know, Baffert is a, he's uh, a radioactive now in the sport, which is a shame for him and for the sport. Um, but he was obviously the extreme example of openness. You know, I mean, I spent hours and hours with him leading up to Pharaoh's Belmont, you know, drove around Kentucky with him, you know, and we were all Dana and Pat and others were, you know, 10 feet from him in the, in the stands at Belmont when that horse won. And, uh, but even people who aren't like that, even people who are a little more prickly by nature than Baffert, if you're at, if you're at Churchill Downs the week or two before the Derby or in, or at Pimlico, you can just walk up to a trainer and start talking and you can ask anything. And you can, there's so many times I've been on the backstretch at Churchill Downs and said, hey, so why did you do this? Why did you do that? Um, okay, your owner is Richard Deitch. Can you tell me something about him? And the trainer will say, well, he's right over there. Why don't you go ask him yourself? And then you walk over and talk to Richard Deitch about his horse. And, and you know, that's, and that 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 extends to people that you would never otherwise have access to in the world. You know, one of my first half a dozen derbies, I went to California to, to do a story uh, on a horse whose name was the very poorly named. That's what I'm talking about, um, who had a very good chance to win the uh, Santa Anita Derby and did, but did not win the Derby. He was owned by this guy named B. Wayne Hughes, who founded Public Storage and was worth a couple billion dollars and he was just out there in a windbreaker in the morning and i stood talking with him about his horse and this is a guy that in the real world to get an interview with i'd have to go through seven pr people but i go out to santa anita in the morning and i'm standing with him and that can lead to missteps because he also told me that he was late to the track that day because he had just bought a new home in malibu and I brilliantly said to him, well, that's good because interest rates are so low for mortgages. And he said to me, they are, but I didn't get a mortgage. With, uh, and I <laughs> said, oh, of course you didn't. But but again, these are the kind of people that are just around and and you can talk to them and find out about their life. And, their, and, and that's changed a little bit in horse racing. And we can go there, too, because uh, there are fewer single owners of horses now and a lot more conglomerations of private equity people who are in the whole thing as an investment. And that has dulled the charm of the sport a little bit. Um, some of those people are interesting too, but it's harder to make your audience feel warm and fuzzy about a guy who's worth a billion dollars and in partnership with seven other people who are all worth a billion dollars because they want to win three races and then syndicate the horse and breed more little horses worth more billions of dollars. Um, so there's been a little bit of that, but then along comes Rich Strike, and that's something that is totally different. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's interesting, Tim, everything you just said, it sort of brings me back. I, I covered the one Belmont Stakes, actually, with you and uh, our fellow colleague, Mark Beach. And this was been Big Brown lost, like the crazy Belmont Stakes. And I remember with like 30 other reporters walking back to the barn right behind Big Brown and I just, I was marveling at just like that kind of access. It was like, you don't, you can't walk back to the Laker locker room, with LeBron James. Like it was just insane. And, um, and it's that sport is just always fascinating to me just because again, like Dana was talking about, you could literally get to the, you know, the equivalent of Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, Dana, one thing that always comes up, at least for me, when it comes to horse racing is, 
know, the American sports public is really, really focused on the Derby. And then maybe they'll be focused on the Preakness. And then obviously if the Preakness and Derby uh, uh, horses are the same, then they're really going to be focused on the Belmont. If they're not the same, many times the Belmont just sort of floats away. So when you're writing this stuff, obviously you sort of have to write for you in some ways in terms of finding the best story. But when you're covering the Derby in particular, like, are you thinking of ways to bring in the broader public who may only watch one race for the entire year? Absolutely. And like, again, for me, I mean, that makes the most sense because that's frankly, I mean, I kind of am representative at some level of every man. Again, like I stumbled into this stuff sort of, you know, accidentally. I mean, I will say that I, you know, I did have the Smarty Jones experience almost, but then my son was born. So I even missed that one. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that, you know, I think that that approach works, frankly, for me, even in covering college basketball. I don't ever operate under the assumption that I'm writing for a very specific basketball fan. I think the way to make any story not just sell, but make it interesting to people is to find something that anybody could read it and find it captivating. Um, so I think the neat thing about covering the Derby, um, again, goes to the access. Like the scenes are just you know, if you haven't actually been there and you've only seen it on TV, you kind of can't really wrap your head around it until you're standing literally in the muck of it. Um, so to describe what you're seeing and the chaos and the the sounds and the, the reactions and the color, and the pageantry, I think is great for anybody. You know, I don't think people are reading my story on The Athletic um, to get the X's and O's of why the horse run. They're, they're just not. I'm just not capable of that. And I don't pretend to be so. I think that's the way to bring it to a broader audience um, is just to tell them the stories and the people, again, their backstories. And uh, and there's just so much stuff that people just don't appreciate, don't understand. I think if you, I never did until I got to go to the Derby and see the numbers and, you know, dozens and dozens of people that get a, per, a horse on the track. There's just, so all that stuff to me, I think just builds for a great story um, better than, than it would be if I were just trying to break down why it won. That's for sure. I think that, you know, the, 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 the thing, you know, Dana came to this, you know, in, you know, 2013 or whatever, but I think the majority of, of writers who cover the sport a little or a lot came to it at some point. Um, there aren't many of us that, you know, grew up mucking stalls at the nearby <laughs> uh, stallion barn. Um, you know, for me, that was a long time ago. I'm, I'm older than Dana. I've been doing this longer. But it's all there's always staggered generations in our business anyway. Um, you know, I'm closer to Dick Girardi's age. And, you know, the first time I went to the races was in 1976 when I was a summer intern at the Schenectady Gazette. And they sent me to Saratoga to cover the Alabama and, you know, I, I just showed up and asked questions, but I, you know, I had to learn and you learn over time. And when I write a story now, whether it's a gamer or a feature, you know, I just, you know, there's one sitting half done on my laptop right now. I just try to a write to the people who don't know horse racing, but try to put enough in there to let people know that I do know more than I'm sharing. You know, I mean, I, I know when a horse changes leads. I know what a fast six furlongs is. I know a lot about sires and brood mares. But, I, you know, Dana knows a lot more about basketball and recruiting and probably the private lives of the coaches than she's going to put in a story. And same with me with swimmers or track athletes. It's it's all the same kind of concept is that you're you're trying to translate a sport to your audience and 
that translation is a slightly heavier lift with horse racing. But as Dana said a few minutes ago, the stories are so great that they do a lot of the translating for you, you know, because, you know, tears and all that stuff is pretty universal language. Dana, what's the, uh, what's, what is your favorite derby that you've covered and why? <laughs> um, geez, I don't know. I just think about that one. I mean, last year was just, I don't know. Like, I'm sure Tim remembers this because I had the same feeling. I remember during the NCAA tournament when Florida Gulf Coast was in Philly and they they won. And I remember we walked into the locker room on the day off and Tim grabbed me. He's like, none of these stories have been told, like, because that never happens at that point of the NCAA tournament, like, because nobody cared yeah. about Florida Gulf Coast till that moment. And it kind yep. of felt like that with Rich Strike last last year, like this guy's over here bawling his eyes out, his daughter's sobbing. There's all kinds of mayhem. We're all like scrambling like wildfire to try to figure this out. But it was such a great story as we kind of ran from person to person, educating ourselves on all of it. I don't know. It almost felt like it was too easy. I mean, like you're cheating. Like someone just handed me that on a platter. Okay. I'll run away with that. Um, so that one to me, probably like, again, my, my volumes are not as vast, but that would probably to me, was up there just because it was such an incredibly rich story that hadn't been told. And here we are in this moment at, at this, you know, that the one moment that everyone pays attention to a horse racing, right. That happened. Okay. I can write that. <laughs> like I can absolutely write that. Tim, uh, Tim, do you want to go with gallon Fox in 1930? Did you cover that one? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there for Sir Barton in uh, 1918. <laughs> same, uh, it would be it would be the same yeah. kind of answer for me, you know. Although Smarty Jones was a favorite and a great horse to cover, American Pharaoh. I think we all knew we were on the cusp of seeing something really cool when he won. But yeah, it's it's Funny Side, it's Giacomo, it's My Net Bird, um, it's those horses that are an untold story and, and very pure in their own way. Um, California Chrome, which went sideways um, eventually, but wow. I mean, I spent four days in California, you know, a month before that. And not, not just because I knew the story inside out because I know it's a really cool story and, and there were a lot of tears and, and Art Sherman and there's just the Derby has, you know, Steve Haskin, a, who, who Dana also knows who's, semi or close to retired now but was a real derby authority always talked about the derby gods and um they the derby gods regularly deliver uh great stories not always um but but on a pretty regular basis and and i want to just you know jump off on something dana said a minute ago about you know rich strike comes through and wins the thing about covering the derby in the moment and now again digital media immediacy there might be a few people out there that have a day to write their story, but most of us have a few hours. And um, if you don't know anything. So to me, I always thought like the few minutes before a heavyweight title fight were unlike anything else, because you really didn't know what was going to happen. It could end in 10 seconds or 12 rounds. And, but it was still binary. One of those two guys is going to win. Um, you know, when Dana's sitting courtside in 2016, before, before Chris Jenkins makes that shot, it's incredibly, you know, your whole body is alive, but it's still going to go one of two ways. You know, with the Derby, when you're when the starting gate is loading and there's this buzz from 160,000 people, you got 20 stories in your head. And actually, you've only got about six because there's 14. You just don't know that well. Um, and one of them is going to win and it's all going to happen in two minutes. And then you're on. 
but it, it, you just don't know which one of those 20 it's going to be. So it's just, it's really unlike anything else. I'm, I'm sure there have been Olympic things, but it takes a little longer than two minutes. So it's those two minutes are, you know, the, the, the half hour leading to it. Then those two minutes are incredibly nerve wracking and exciting and fun and scary. Um, you know, it's, it's why I stagger out of Churchill Downs every, every first Saturday in May, you know, just whipped. Uh, Dana, I want to ask you, we'll, we'll sort of finish up on something um, current. Um, 40 really looks like a beautiful horse. Five race winning streak. Um, the clear favorite heading into the Derby. What are your, at least from afar at this point, your impressions of that horse? Yeah, well, from afar, it would be very much from afar, but I agree with you. You know, And listening to Todd Pletcher yesterday on a, on a conference call, you could tell he's very feels very good about this horse as well. So, you know, I, I think trainers probably don't like to talk too positively about things sometimes, but, you know, the fact that he's not going to, he's not going to dumb down how, how good his horse is. So, you know, I would expect he will be the one to beat. Um, but it's interesting. Again, I, I always, I, I go back to, like I said, to Girardi, Dick Girardi, who is my mentor and who knows so much about this. And, and he said kind of how I was feeling. He's like, definitely Forte is the best horse in the field. He said, but, it's not like justify. It's not like this obvious. It's not like you just know going in, he's going to hundred percent win. There's just a lot of, a lot of other horses that are interesting. Uh, I think in the field, it's, it's just a little bit more unsettled than maybe it has been in recent years, but um, I mean, it'd be a great story, obviously for Pletcher. He's brought a thousand horses to the Derby, not a whole hell of a lot to show for it. Um, so we can certainly work with that, but, um, I'll be curious. I'll be curious. I'm anxious to get down there. I'll be down there Monday so I can actually see them work in person. I'll feel better. You know, I'll be curious to see how it all shakes out there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I certainly think he looks great and will certainly probably be the favorite, but we'll, we know how those things tend to go sometimes. Tim, what about you from, uh, and we'll get into some of the other horses that people should be paying attention to, but yeah, I think for, I think, uh, Forte is great horse. I think, um, he's, Seed, and I think it'd be cool. Uh, Pletcher's won it twice. His owner, Mike Rapoli, has given a lot to racing and is really good talking to us. You know, last year I talked to him about some problems racing had, and he said to me, You got to remember horse racing is the Flintstones, not the Jetsons, which, you know, <laughs> I will, you know, which is one of the greatest quotes I've ever gotten in my life. But yeah, so I think it'd be cool for him to win. But, you know, I think you know, this, this gets a little horsey, but, but, you know, beware of pace. Um, last year, there were two really good horses that went two, three in the race. Um, and Rich Strike beat them both on the inside, mainly because a couple other horses went really, really fast at the beginning and pulled some others along with them and everybody got tired and Rich Strike didn't because he was way in the back jogging along and he watched the pace collapse. So in a center, Rich Strike was not the best horse in that race, but he won. Uh, Forte is probably the best rate horse in this year's Derby, but you know, again, a horsey analysis here, but that I don't see a lot of pace in the race. And that means that there are a couple horses that could, could leverage that to their advantage. And we could see Forte running a really good race and not catching the leaders. And he could still be the best horse and go on and win the Preakness and Belmont and the Breeders' Cup and, Again, we're back to the whole theme of this conversation, which is the Derby's just crazy. Tim, um, I want to ask you uh, before I finish up on one other thing. Um, 
uh, about Practical Move and what of, and if there are any other horses that you like. Uh, Santa Anita Derby uh, has produced four of the last 11 Kentucky Derby winners. Um, not that I know that off the top of my head, but in going through a YouTube rabbit hole, I started watching some old Santa Anita Derbies. Uh, Practical Move it won the Santa Anita Derby this year and looks like it's the second favorite or third favorite for this year's Derby. So if... Um, if you want to, I don't know, stay away from Forte, uh, who else should people look for in your opinion? I'm so bad at this. I, I just, you know, um, the Santa Anita Derby thing is is kind of a Baffert thing um, to a great extent. You know, I mean, he he dominated that race so, for so many years, and it was the fact that he had those horses that made it that made it such an important. Um, derby prep but i just want to be so careful i um i think so the um japanese horse whose name i can't pronounce derma sodagake i think um a horse has never come from dubai uh, winning the uae derby and come from dubai to win the derby it's always been a they're 0 for 18 that horse has speed could get loose on the lead i think he's going to be popular with betters um, I do think practical move is a good horse. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'd kind of like to see Forte win the race because he's the best horse and it's not always the best story, but it's fun when, when, you know, you got a monster horse going to the Preakness, but, um, you know, I think Derma Sotagake and again, oh gosh, I apologize for the pronunciation, but he's, he he's a horse with speed. So if you're looking for a horse that might be a decent price, he could be eight to one, ten to one, twelve to one. Sure, I'd go there or use him in your exactas, as we say. Although I don't bet ever, <laughs> haven't bet since the Travers in 1987. Or, so that's going to be my last issue on this. Dana, do you want to add any uh, any other horses to look at? Well, you know, I want to I want to I want Phil to talk or Phil to, uh, Tim to talk about his favorite horse, two Phils. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I know how much he loves the name of the horse because it's the apostrophe on the bill. Um, yeah. What a tragedy that would be to put that name up on Churchill. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, I think I do think that the Japanese horse is kind of interesting, you know, to, to Tim's point. They train completely different differently. So everyone just doesn't trust them. Um but he is fast. Uh, and again, I, I, I see my thoughts to Girardi a lot. He's very curious about that horse, which makes me very curious about that horse. Um, he said, it's not like your typical Dubai horse in some regards. So, but the, the, you know, the Japanese style of training is just so unique that it, people are curious if it can actually translate to the Derby. Um, and it would be a wild story, kind of tricky because obviously, um, you know, not a lot of information, but I'd be, I'm curious to see if that horse can live up to, to the billing a little bit, frankly. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, last one. We'll start with Dana and then finish with Tim. This is like one of the, uh, you know, this is like straight out of like uh, J school, like, uh, you know, 108 seminar. Um, <laughs> but it's such an interesting question because it is so 
in some ways, or it has for so long in some ways been unique to horse racing, it will now be uh, not unique to every other sport. Dan, how do you feel about um, people who cover races betting at the track? I believe, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, that um, there's a place very, very close to where like press boxes are at some of these major events where if writers, television people, like whatever Like in the room, to... do you mean? That would be very close, correct? <laughs> oh, is that it? I didn't even know. So there you go. So there's literally like a window there. Um, <laughs> but it's such a, you know, it's not like when you're covering the Final Four, you right. could literally like walk like 25 feet and bet on the on the, um, on the outcome. So it's just always been so fascinating to me so i just wonder just from like a writ large perspective like what what do you what do you think of that like what what are your thoughts on the idea of someone who's covering like the kentucky derby also betting on the kentucky derby yeah i mean it's it's kind of weird you're right it's messy it would never ever occur to me ever even if there was a i don't even know if them i don't can't imagine there would be a wet betting win- window because the NCA would shutter its doors. But <laughs> let's pretend for argument's sake that the NCA had a betting window. Like I can't fathom placing a bet in game at the first round of the NCA tournament, but yet it seems sort of understood that it's what you do when you go to cover a horse race. Um, I don't know that it bothers me um, because I, what impact could I possibly have um, on that horse, right? I guess it could color the way I write if I get angry. Um, personally, I don't think I would, but I, I do think it's interesting because like I'm seeing it certainly in the college sports world, like athletes are getting horrible DMs about that's gone bad. And you hear people screaming at the end of a 12 point win because somebody hit a three to cover the spreads. So you see how it kind of infiltrates your coverage a little bit and things happen. But I guess I don't know. I feel like I'm, I should be more bothered about it than I am. Um, that's not a really great answer, but that's probably where I sit. Yeah, I, I'm a, I think that's an honest answer, and I'm not even sure you should be bothered by it. That's like what's an interesting question on it. What about you, Tim? You you just mentioned um, before, I think I knew this, that you're not somebody who bets on races regardless, but I am sure you've worked with people who do. And quite frankly, at Sports Illustrated, um, we had some great colleagues who would um, – write a piece uh annually like as to how they were going to bet and i think even if they were covering the race they'd go out and make their bets based on their analysis so how how do you see this very sort of unique thing when it, when it comes to the sports media i mean gambling is central to horse racing it's 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 the financial underpinning of the sport and you know whoever wins the derby this year dane and i are going to both write about what he paid and what the odds were so i mean it's not it's not like it isn't right out there but and and also you know, while betting is only now becoming sort of broadly legal everywhere in America on sporting events, sports writers have been betting on sporting events as long as there have been sports writers in sporting events. So, I mean, it hasn't been legal, but it's been happening. Um, and for me, so in 1987, I bet $100 to win on Polish Navy in the Travers. Um, I knew the trainer well, Shug McGahey. I was making about 150 a week at the time. Um, and Polish Navy took the lead inside the quarter pole and then flattened out and finished fourth. And uh, I mean, I, I could hardly breathe when that race finished. And I had to write the game story for the Albany Times Union. And I, my fingers were shaking trying to write the game story. So I made a decision as I was writing that game story. I am never effing doing this again. Right. Because it bothered me too much. Now, 
a lot of time has gone by. I could bet $100 on Forte in the Derby and he could lose and my fingers wouldn't be shaking. Um, I'd be mad, but, you know, it would be a different dynamic. But over the years, as I've seen people bet a lot and cover the sport, I do wonder how it can not affect their judgment a little bit. Um, But everything in our life affects our judgment when we write something. We're not we don't exist in a vacuum. So I wouldn't judge anybody who does it. It just doesn't work for me. And, but it's a part of racing and, you know, it's, I think probably as years go forward, it's going to be more a part of every sport. I mean, it's much more a part of the language of, of everything we cover now. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think we're, I don't think a, I don't think a betting terminal, um, that looks like an ATM at the final four, in Dana's lifetime is um, is out of the question, but certainly not in her kids' lifetimes. No. That would be fantastic, by the way, just mostly because I want to see how many people at the NCAs would just pass out. <laughs> yeah. uh, Tim, we can see your uh, we can see your triple crown work at NBCSports.com. Am I correct? About right. That? Yeah. And on NBC Sports TV. Of course. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you're you're a front facing talent now. You're a big dog. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Dana O'Neill, we can see your work on the athletic. Certainly you'll be at the Derby, right? And then, uh, we'll see Um, how, we'll see what happens after that, depending on the the horses. Yeah, I will sort of be helping with Derby coverage, but the actual event I have to skip because my daughter thought that was a good weekend to graduate from college. So, um, not that she set the date. So I will be helping with coverage, but I can't actually be in, in Louisville on Derby day because of my daughter's college graduation. I thought that kind of mattered. I did. I did. Does, know this, that. does this mean we have to leave a gap in the picture yes, again, Dana? We do once more. We did. We take an annual picture. You should know, um, all of us like with the spires behind us before the Derby, and all of us in a row with our little. And the one year I missed, they everyone left the space for where I was supposed to be. And now you'll have to do it again one more time, Tim. I promise, not again. <laughs> well, I wanted to get. Yeah, I wanted to get that. Uh, Recorded, Danny, because I wanted to give you Mother of the Year award to choose a kid's graduation. <laughs> and I'm going to play this for my daughter so she knows. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So check out Tim and Dana's work. Um, also, just keep in mind, by the way, 40 years ago at Belmont, you may have heard of the horse that won that. I imagine we'll probably be reading about that horse uh, as well over the next couple of weeks. All right. Dana O'Neill and Tim Lane, and two of the best to write about uh, horse racing and absolutely two of the best. In my profession, Dana and Tim, thank you so much for joining me today on the uh, Sports uh, Media Podcast. Thank you, Dana, and thank you, Tim. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Tim Layden and Dana O'Neill for their time and their insights. Uh, If you like these conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. If you want to uh, check the archives out, I did something on the NFL Draft and ESPN layoffs with Amy Trask and Ben Strauss. We had Ryan Clark come on to uh, talk about uh, covering the NHL's postseason. Michael Nathanson, the uh, uh, one of the top analysts in the country to discuss the future of sports media rights. And then before that, Alan Shipnuck on uh, covering the Masters and Howard Beck on NBA uh, voting from the media. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for uh, their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.